it's good to, good to be back with, with everybody today. Uh, we are picking up in our series in Exodus. So if you've been with us for the past number of weeks, even I think we're coming up maybe on months now, we've been working our way through an Old Testament book, the book of Exodus. So uh, we are, uh, this morning we're picking up where I left off last week in chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to uh, swipe that on or open that up. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you today, um, we, we will have the words projected so you can follow along with the reading. In fact, um, I'm going to spend very little time introducing the passage today because I've, I've chosen a lengthy text um, to cover. Uh, for those of you that have been with us, uh, we are right in this section uh, of, of what's called the, the plagues, They're the plagues of judgment. So if you're familiar with the Bible, um, God has p- chosen a man, Moses, to be the deliverer of his people out of Egypt, and God is expressing his supremacy through the judgment of these 10 plagues. And so last week we talked about plagues one through three. This week I'm actually going to cover plagues four all the way up through uh, nine. And so um, I, I, I was tossing and turning in bed last night whether or not I was going to read the whole text or just highlight some passages, um, but, but here's, here's what we're going to do. Uh, We're going to read the whole text, which is 76 verses. Um, It's lengthy, I know. I'll try to make it as, um, you know, readable with you. It it is a narrative, so it follows easily. But but here's why. Here's why I chose to read the whole text, and and, and it's really two reasons. One, we believe that this written word is the inspired and infallible word of God. We are a Bible church, and so, um, so there's that. Um, but, but the second reason is we believe that God works through ordinary things like the reading of Scripture. And so we're going to read the whole text. So follow along with me. We're going to pick up in chapter 8, verse 20, and I'm going to read all the way through chapter 10. So it's narratives. It's a, a lot of repetition. It's Hebrew literature, so it kind of reads in re- repetitive nature. But Let's listen to the word of God this morning from the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they might serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall dwell there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. And so Pharaoh said, I will let you go to the sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. 
Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause every hard hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there might be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never had been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. 
Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you might know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. And so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so the heart of, hard, of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you might know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they might serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they might serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? And so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord for, what, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts, and the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea, and not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take, them, take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This ends the reading of God's word. Let me take a drink of water and then let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for their clarity. Uh, Lord, we do need your help though. We need help understanding them. And so Lord, we pray that Holy Spirit, you would come now and that you would give us understanding today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I, I, many of us grew up hearing things um, said to us, uh, oftentimes in kind of anecdotal type of statements. Uh, one, of, one of those things that I heard growing up, and I'm sure many of you did too, was, was money doesn't grow on trees, right? And, and my kind of smart aleck remark as a kid was, well, well, yes, it does, it's paper, you know, ha-ha. Um, but, but for me, kind of... You know, hearing about money and the value of it as a kid, you know, you try to teach your children these things. It, it doesn't really take root until you, you learn it yourself a little bit, right, the value of money. Um, and so for me, I think I began to, to start really valuing and understanding money was when I made my first big boy purchase, which was my, my first vehicle. Uh, bought, a, bought a truck. It was a, a 93 um, Toyota pickup truck. Um, yeah, it was, it was let, me just, let me just revel in this for a minute. It was a black extended cab. Anybody see the Back to the Future truck? Yeah, that was my truck. So it was, this, it was the older model Toyota, and, it, and it, was, it was used, but it was new to me. I spent months searching for this. Uh, finally found the truck that I wanted, um, and, then, and then conveniently took out the, the, the no-entrance parent loan. You, you, know, you ever have one of those? You know, the borrow the money from the parents and I'll pay you back loan? Um, so graciously, my parents, you know, they paid for the truck, and then I was to do payment installments until it was paid off. Well, um, to that point, in my mind, money grew on trees. Um, but, but once I, you know, got that truck and began making those payments and kind of grinding out work in, in college just to kind of see what that felt like to, to make a, a car payment, um, I, I really began... Um, to see how my understanding of money would, would have implications on the way I live my life. And so this, this core belief of money grew on trees, really, it, it conditioned the way I live my life because it, it changed when I had to make, pay my own bills. Um, our lives are conditioned on a lot of different beliefs. Um, we, we are conditioned on beliefs about reality, 
condition on beliefs about um, you know our experiences in life, like all of these kind of under uh, uh, under the layers of of our activity is is core beliefs, and um, the reality is if if your life is built on core beliefs that are not true, you can actually be deeply damaged. I mean, you, you even just take the money one as an example. Like if, if I never would have learned, you know, the value of money, um, and, I would have all, and if I would have continued just to live kind of life outside of my financial means and kind of accrued a bunch of debt, like that would have deeply damaged me. Uh, and, and so kind of this idea of unpacking these beliefs that we have and how they can damage us actually is what I think is, is happening in, in the plagues. Um, now, when you and I read or, or hear a long narrative like that and kind of think about what was going on, I think there's this, there's, there's this cultural gap, there's this chronological gap, like what, is this, what does this have to do with us? Um, and, and here's how I want to approach today's passage. Um, it kind of it's going to have a bit of an apologetic bent to it, uh, not not apologetic like I'm going to apologize, although I might need to do that, um, but I'm hoping not. But more of like a a defense of the faith kind of approach. And so I'm kind of I'm doing some reverse thinking on this. So what I've what I've done in this passage is I've I've kind of discovered I think three myths that you and I probably believe, um, and I think Pharaoh believed them. It, to some extent, and I think they can do us a lot of damage. And so my approach is, I, I'm going to tell you the three myths, and then we're going to attempt to deconstruct and debunk those myths a little bit. So here's the three myths this morning that we see in these uh, last plagues. Uh, we see the myth of many ways. Uh, we see the myth of easy believism. I think I made that word up. I'm allowed to make words up. And then thirdly, we see the myth of second chances. Okay, so the myth of uh, many ways, easy believism, and then second chances. So let's talk about the myth of many ways first. Uh, part of my Bible preparation, uh, sermon preparation for this week was watching The Prince of Egypt. Uh, you guys seen that one? So that's, it's Disney's rendition of the Exodus account. So I had the boys this weekend. And so, you know, what better way than to watch The Prince of Egypt with them? And I was, I was kind of multitasking while the boys were watching the movie, but I was trying to pick up snippets of it here and there. And uh, I was in the kitchen and uh, the, the part about the plagues came on. And, and the boys, they, Daddy, Daddy, the plagues are coming. The plagues are coming, they tell me. And, and you know, the, the, the emotional music kicks in in the movie then. It's kind of like high, high strung music at that point. And it's, it's high intensity, right? Um, and, you know, you, you read these, these plagues and you think, you know, why the intensity, God? Like, why, why so, such, you know, kind of brutal ways of, of revealing yourself? Um, why, why such high levels of intensity? And if you remember, if you've been with us for this series, p- part of um, what God's doing here is answering the question that Pharaoh asked at the beginning. And the question was, who is this Yahweh? Who, who is this Lord that you, you talk about, Moses? Uh, you know, Pharaoh didn't know who he was. And so part of the plagues is God revealing himself in Supre- just supreme ways, extreme ways, radical ways. 
And, and, and you see, even in, in uh, verses 14 and 16 of chapter 9, finally God, he, he, he kind of just throws this little reminder statement in the middle of the narrative uh, for why he's doing this. Verse 14, chapter 9. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that, there's the purpose statement, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Then verse 16, but for this purpose, I have raised you up, he's talking uh, to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so on the, on the very, um, I mean, on the very front page of these plagues is God saying, there's no one else like me, none. Um, he's making the ultimate truth claim right there. Nobody else but me. Um, you know, if you've been around the church in the Bible at all, uh, you'll know that Jesus came and he made, he kind of ratch, ratcheted up that statement even more because he said, there's no one like Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, and I am him. And so the offense of Jesus was the claim that I am the only way to God. It was this statement of exclusivity. Now, you and I, as Western-minded American people, are offended by that. Uh, the objection, you know, the, 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 the claim of one way sounds extremely narrow-minded and really arrogant. And so what we've done, and, and I, think, I think it's present here, even though we, we might all say we believe in the exclusive ways, is we've done a couple of things with a, a statement like the plagues are make, making, the, the statement of exclusivity. One of the ways is we've relativized it. We've kind of downplayed it a little bit, right? It's like, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus is my way, but it might not be everyone's way. So we kind of we take this approach that like, um, you know, the, the illustration is of the blind men filling the elephant. Like we know parts of it, but other religions, there might be some, you know, relevance there. And so they might be able to add some insight. And so we begin to really just relativize the faith. Or, and I think more so, this is us, we, we privatize it. And so we, 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 we say something like, Yes, I believe that, you know, the God of the Bible is the exclusive God, um, but I'll, I'll just kind of keep it to myself. Like, it seems and feels arrogant that we would try to tell others what they ought to believe. And so there's this kind of this air, this air of pride um, I, that people think, and I, and I kind of want to debunk this, that when we say that there is no other God like this God, when we make the, the claims of exclusivity, we're actually being prideful. Um, but but here's, here's the reality. Um, only this message, the message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, has the power to produce humility in human hearts. It's the only one. And, and here's why. Um, the message, one way you could kind of boil down the message of the Bible is this. God came 
to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Like, like the picture of Exodus, the picture of God taking his people out of circumstances that they could not bring themselves out of. Right? The, the, the monkey illustration James used. The king coming off of his throne and taking the outsider and bringing him inside is the deepest work of humility that could ever be produced in a human heart. Like, the message of redemption is you need help. And so if God, through the work of his son, has provided that help, and the way it comes is in the most unpredictable fashion, through the death of God himself, through the suffering of the divine one, if it comes in that fashion, he comes and he takes punishment and plagues and curses on himself so that people who couldn't help themselves are now brought in and and helped. What ought that to produce in us? Just the deepest levels of humility anyone has ever experienced. Like, when we talk about the exclusive claims of Christianity, and listen, this is what Moses is doing. He's saying there's none, there is no other God. Yahweh is the God. It doesn't produce this, this air of pride within us, but it actually brings us to this deep level of humiliation. And so the myth of many ways God has debunked in the plagues. Another myth is what I've called the myth of easy believism. Um, I've mentioned this before. I'll probably mention it again. But there was a a significant study done, um, I think it was about 10 or 15 years ago. It came out in a book. The book's called Soul Searching. Um, uh, the author's Christian Smith, and he did this survey of 3,000 American teenagers about their beliefs in God. And uh, he boiled it down to, to five things that he believes um, that, that, that American teenagers, broadly speaking, believe about God. Um, and, and I would say this, this is way beyond teenagers. Like, this is us a lot of times. And here's the five things that this author kind of summarized his um, research into. Here's Here's what they believe about God. That a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most other religions. Thirdly, that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Fourth, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then lastly, that good people go to heaven when they die. Um, man. Now, if that, if that were true, the plagues would be overkill, right? Like, if that's the God of the Bible... Like all that we're reading about and that Egypt and Israel were experienced, that it's overkill. Right? Like who would, who would confess or bend a knee to a God like that? Um, he he seems kind of just like a, just a nice gentleman, right? Um, Pharaoh begins to feel um, what, we would, what we would call his sense of need, um, in verse 27 of, of chapter 9, 
He, he finally, this is plague seven, mind you. Now, listen, we don't know the time frame on all of these. Uh, you know, some of the livestock came back, and so this is probably a lengthy period of time. But finally, plague seven, Pharaoh says this, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. So kind of on the surface right here, Pharaoh begins to say, I might be wrong about this. Um, and, and, and we might say that's kind of maybe, maybe like a small seed of faith and belief right there. Um, but let's, let's just pull apart and, and kind of deconstruct what believing for Pharaoh, uh, why it was lacking. One of the reasons it was lacking is because he continued to refuse that Yahweh, the Lord, was the supreme and only God. Uh, when he refers to the hail, he doesn't call him by his covenant name, Yahweh. He calls him Elohim. It's the broad general name for God. He says Elohim produced this hail. So it was a downright refusal to acknowledge that he's the supreme one. Second thing he does or lacks to do is his, his fear appears to be uh, mostly over the consequences of his actions, right? Not his actions themselves. So, so he wants to be delivered from this death. He wants to be delivered from all of the punishment that he's facing. Right? He doesn't want his land to suffer like his land suffering. But the third and the final thing that, that Pharaoh's su- supposed perhaps repentance, what, what we would call repentance and faith, is lacking is that it produced zero change in his life. It, di- it didn't change anything about the way he conducted his life. Um, so for Pharaoh, his problem was he's an egotistical, arrogant, um, ter- you know, he's a maniac. He, he is a, he's a dictator. Now, we might have a few of those here today, um, but, but by and large, our problem is not that we are egotistical maniacs like that, but rather that we're moralistic, therapeutic deists like Christian Smith has labeled them, those five things I talked about. See, you and I have been kind of, we've been sold this belief that faith is really easy. Uh, you know, fill out a card, slide that to an usher, uh, and pray with us, or, you know, walk an aisle, or, um, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the practice is. But we've kind of been told that this belief thing is rather programmatic. It's kind of just like you check a box. I mean, I would summarize, and I'm speaking broadly here, and I don't, I don't think this is us all the time, but I would summarize largely the way we live our lives is that we should just be cool with Jesus and be as good of a person as we can. Like, like just be cool with Jesus. Like, okay, he was great, he's wise, yeah, I, I respect his teachings, and just kind of keep him on the good list, right? You want to be cool with Jesus, but you also want to just make sure you're just doing the best you can, right? Like living the best possible life just in case this, this Jesus guy isn't quite enough. And so, um, you know, the Bible just talks in, and the plagues are showing us just this, the radically, uh, you know, exhaustive things that God requires of us. Let me just listen, listen to the way Jesus talked about following him. Let me just read a few passages. I don't, I don't think I'll have them up, but just they're short. 
Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Later on in the same Gospel of Matthew, he would say, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, death instrument, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then later he would go on and say, If you'd be perfect, speaking to the young rich ruler, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. See, believing the gospel, believing the good news about what Jesus has come to do for us requires nothing less than all of you. I mean, it's an all-in religion. Um, Jesus would, would, he would tell that parable of how someone went and found uh, the treasure hidden in the field, and then the man went and he, he sold everything he had to buy the field so he could have that treasure. He was all in. So, are we believing the gospel just to avoid the consequences? To avoid the plagues, to avoid the curse, to avoid hell? Or are we believing the gospel because it has absolutely consumed us? It has undone our hearts. See, the plagues are showing us that the myth of easy believism is just debunked. Jesus requires nothing less than all of us. But the third, the third thing that I think these plagues show us um, is the myth of second chances. Let's look thirdly at the myth of second chances. Um, recently, I, I, uh, I, I chipped in uh, to, the, to the Planet Fitness um, coffer. Any of you just have a Planet Fitness uh, membership just because it's only 10 bucks? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate that. Um, you know, Planet Fitness has, has this great marketing thing where it's just so cheap to have a gym membership, like everybody should just have one. Um, and they just make it really simple. Well, I, I bought in because time has gotten the best of me. I haven't been able to get to the gym that I like to all the time. So I'm now a member of Planet Fitness. And as I was getting the tour, you know, you get, you get the tour, uh, the, the, the young guy that was helping me out, he would, you know, up front, here, here's the deal with Planet Fitness. It's all, it's all over the walls. It's on all four walls, different, different sayings. But judgment-free zone right? And then it says, no critics. And so their whole marketing ploy is to reach, you know, the average person. We just want to get in there, get some exercise. And so uh, you're, you're not allowed to do anything extreme in this gym, apparently. Grunting and large water <laughs> bottles are off limits. But, um, but it, it had me thinking, like, here's, here's, here's the ploy. This space right here, judgment-free. Come on in. No judgment over here. Just Come on in. I don't know if you noticed when I was reading the passage, if you were still awake, um, they're, they're, uh, in these plagues, it didn't happen in the first three, but in these, three, in these last plagues, these last six plagues, God's people are distinct. God's people, the curses don't fall on them. They're set apart. Goshen, where, where God's people were, was a judgment-free zone. Right? So flies, you know, miraculously did not enter Goshen. Hail, no. Boils, no. Locusts, no. 
Judgment-free zone. Um, And then another thing that I picked up on, and I hope you picked on as we read it, is in every single plague, God... Moses tells Pharaoh why they're at making this request to, to, to be set free, and it's to serve the Lord. Um, and, and there's some progress in these plagues because he begins to develop that what's serving, which that word could be used for working or toiling or broadly speaking, worshiping, but there's some development in the plagues and that now they're saying we are going to go to make sacrifices and offerings. Do you notice that? Pharaoh's like, you can take some of your livestock, but not all of them. That was, that was Pharaoh's attempt to you know, hold some collateral damage. Like, hey, if I'm going to let you go out for three days, I need you to give me some assurance that you're coming back. Um, and God's people said, we need to take all of our animals because God is asking us to make our sacrifices and offerings, and we don't know what all he's going to require from us. Now, you know, master of the obvious up here, but um, the ceremonial law, and the tabernacle, and the temple, and all of those things that we know about the Old Testament, they're not in play yet. And so you begin to think, okay, God, even before he's ordained and established these sacrifices to be how he would be worshipped, is already working through the sacrificial system. Um. And there is a, a big myth about sacrificing, and I want to I talk about it. And here's the myth. The myth is that even in the Old Testament, but even in our lives today, that God provides just enough to clean your slate. Um, and so, like, if you, you know about the Old Testament, you, these were repetitious sacrifices that had to be offered over and over again because God's, you know, God's people continued to sin. And so the, the misunderstanding is that somehow the blood of the bulls and the goats and all that that involved was somehow a way for God just to provide enough to give God's people a clean slate to do better next time. So you're saying, well, Adam, you know, we don't do the whole blood and animals thing anymore. And I don't really, I don't operate with God like that. You ever said anything like this? I'm really sorry, God, that I did blank. I'll do better next time. Right? I mean, I, I know I'm not the only one that operates with God like that. You know, it's this, it's this kind of transactional thing like, God, if you will just forgive me enough to clean my slate... I'll do better next time. Um, it's the myth of second chances. Um, here's, here's what you need to hear today. We don't need more second chances. We need a second Adam. See, the Bible teaches that there is one man, the first man, Adam, who plunged all of us into our sinfulness. And so both by our nature as people, but also our choice, we love to sin. And um, the question I want you to begin to ask of yourself is this. Why does sin continue to plague my life? See, there are certain things that you and I long to rid ourselves of. 
lustfulness, anger, greed, envy, all of those deep things that we know in our hearts. And here, here is why I think part of the reason that we cannot see it leave our lives is because we think that Jesus is not enough. Um, when you believe Hebrews chapter 10 that says this, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, Christians... Um, our belief is that the work of Christ for us is enough to atone for our sins, so much so that your priest is now sitting down because the work is finished. When you believe that, sin begins to leave your life. Why? Not because you have to perform to please God, but because you know that Jesus already performed for you. So your desire changes not because you think you have to work to rid yourself from this thing, but because you know that Jesus has already paid it for it in such a way that you now smell the death of it and want it gone. See, that's the difference between gospel-motivated putting to death of sin and religious-based works. Let me try to tie this up in a little knot for us today. What, what are these plagues, what are they asking of us? Um, I think they're, they're asking us a few things. I think they're asking us to see the unique display of God's power through judgment. And not just judgment on Egypt, but judgment on his own son. It's asking us to see that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and that his work is enough. And if, and if that is true, then we ought to be doing everything in our power by God's grace to what we call repent or turn away from our willful rebellion and flee to that one. It's what judgment produces in us. And when we begin believing that Jesus' work is actually enough, there's nothing more that we have to bring to the table because his work is enough, that the priest is seated, change will begin. You will see sin leave your life more than it ever has before when you believe Jesus' work is enough for you. I pray that that is true of all of us today. Let's ask God to help us in that endeavor. Father, it is, it is extremely difficult for us um, to think about judgment and to think about how you have exclusively made one way for us to be right with you through your Son. Lord, we are hardwired to be religious people, to try harder, to do better, to perform for you and for others. God, it is my prayer that you would free us as a church from that slavery. 
that you would help us to taste the liberating freedom of Christ's work for us. The high priest is ruling and reigning, seated on his throne for the people of God so that we experience the judgment-free zone like we never have before. Lord, I believe there's people here today who have never tasted that freedom. I pray that you would give them that. And Lord, there's many of us today who know that freedom, but we, like a dog to its vomit, run back to it. So Lord, we need your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.